A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. Welcome to the Second Age Podcast. We're the Lorehounds, your guides to Tolkien's world of Middle-earth. I'm David. And I'm John. And this is Chapter 3, The Elves. In this episode, we have three segments, uh, a discussion of Tolkien's academic career, a brief overview of some literary themes, and then a deep dive into elf lore. Before we get started, here's a quick reminder that you can send feedback to secondage at baldmove.com, and we'll get to those questions on the final episode, which will be a Q&A. And if you want to talk Tolkien with us sooner, join us on the Bald Move Discord server. There's a link in the show description, and you can also get that at baldmove.com. And be sure to get all the Bald Move and Lorehounds coverage of Rings of Power by subscribing to the Doug Too Deep podcast feed. We're going to be releasing exclusive content on this feed, so you don't want to miss out. Click on the link in the show notes or search for Doug Too Deep in your podcast application of choice. So let's get started with a discussion of philology. Philology. I'm just trying to say philology. Philology. Silmarillion. Philology. (laughs) I know we got busted for saying it wrong. Uh, (laughs) So I'm trying to practice. Silmarillion. Yes. All right. So, um, John, what is philology? Philology is sort of a cousin to linguistics. It's this branch of linguistics that deals with the structure, historical development, and relationships of a language or languages. So it's a little bit more contextual than linguistics. Okay, that's a lot. (laughs) So, like, how does that play out in Tolkien's life, especially his early life? Yeah, so he, as we've stated before, had this deep relationship with his mother who died very early. Mm -hmm. And his mother had this habit with him of working through classical languages like Latin and Greek when he was a small child. Sometimes they would go into other European languages. And immediately as a child, he's fascinated by how languages sound, like the feel of the words, Mm. how they're used poetically, and rather than just their plain meaning. Interesting. And um, so then his mother, well, so he was born in South Africa, as we covered in the prologue, he was born in South Africa, and then he and his mother moved to the, to back to England, and then his mm-hmm. father passed away in South Africa, and so then he was just with his mother in, in England, and then she passed away. Right. 
Right. And then after that, he went to study uh, at university before joining the war. So at some point, this love of language rolls into his uh, academic studies. Yeah. And even before that, you know, he's driving down the road with his mom and he sees a truck with Welsh words on it and he's fascinated by it. Mm. That's actually one of his favorite languages through his life. And as a child, he's making up languages with family members and friends. And later mm -hmm. he's like, oh, every kid has a creative outlet. But, you know, he's just making up full languages. That's, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Wild. So he had a very interesting view of himself, you know. Uh-huh. Indeed. But he did get to academic studies eventually. And he's immediately drawn towards the study of language. And he's sort of taken in by professors who push him towards philology rather than literature paths. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because that was sort of this dichotomy in a lot of universities at the time of either you study language or you study literature and you study a little bit of both, but really you have a big emphasis on one or the other. Right. I got it. Okay. So as he's learning, uh, as he's in, in his university studies, this sort of, uh, is, is this when this awareness uh, in him begins to rise about the loss of so much Anglo-Saxon history and linguistic history? Yeah, so, you know, Tolkien has a German name from his father, but okay. his mother uh, had an English last name. I think it was Suffield. Mm -hmm. And her ancestors came from the West Midland area. And so he finds writings in the West Midland dialect, and he immediately sees this language and says, this feels known to me. Hmm. This feels like a familiar language. He's feeling a connection to his mother, you know, long past now, um, right. through this language that's basically a dead version of English. So he he does that, and he feels that connection, and he considers sort of the loss of this language and the loss of most of classical English generally, because the Norman Conquest had really wiped out a lot of Anglo-Saxon literature and linguistic history. So his mission sort of became, during his academic career, to start preserving that and rediscovering things from before the Conquest. It's really interesting. It's, it's like a double loss. He, uh, he lost his mother, and then through his connection with his mother, this um, deeper connection with his mother's family and, and their history, and that greater history of, of the Anglo-Saxon and, and Norman con uh, conflicts. Yeah, and he has something going on with himself and the French, too, because there's some point where uh, Humphrey Carpenter, in his excellent biography of Tolkien, notes that Tolkien, like, hated when they served French foods at functions. He's like, no, 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 serve me English food or nothing. Wow. I will not eat this French garbage. <laughs> That's hilarious. So maybe he just held a grudge from the Norman Conquest. <laughs> I guess, I guess. So uh, after university, he uh, joins up, uh, and because he is uh, in um, uh, college trained, uh, he uh, receives a commission, and then he goes and serves some time in, in World War One. And we're going to talk a little bit more about his war history in a in a future chapter. Mm -hmm. But uh, he's mustered out because he was sick; he got trench fever, and then he, at, I think, his first job was at Oxford English. Uh, at the at the dictionary, the Oxford uh, English Language Dictionary, mm -hmm. but then he switched over and became an academic at, in in university. Yeah, and that's really where I think his philology uh, really starts to blossom and grow. Yeah, he didn't start out. Uh, well, he did do the Oxford Dictionary first, and then once he started teaching, he sort of moved into a a different university. Eventually, finds mm -hmm. his way back to Oxford, which was right. his you know university home the rest of his life. 
Um, but that's where he starts to really be the language guy, you know, right. not the literature guy. He's not interested in reading anything contemporary. He's reading classic poetry. And he was known as this professor who would just speak in a way that assumed the knowledge of his listeners. So he wasn't talking to you as a first year student. He was talking to you as a philologist. Wow. And that could be hard to keep up with. <laughs> right. But it's also really powerful because it, it draws you up and, and out uh, rather than sort of infantilizing you and making you small. Right. It demands a lot, sure. but it's very rewarding if you can keep up. Absolutely. And so his famous lecture was on Beowulf, this epic poem in Old English. Mm. And he would walk into the room and shout the first word. And everyone just, just suddenly become quiet because they're <laughs> terrified. And the word actually sounded kind of like quiet, even though it was an old English word. <laughs> and so, right. and um, he immediately begins to perform the poem as a medieval bard. And wow. so he's trying to sort of revive these works the way that they were intended, rather than just allowing them to be these purely academic studies. And I think that's one of the points about philology is that it's not just a analysis of language and studying, you know, its its connectedness or or whatnot. It's actually looking at the living context of the language. How is this language used by people in a real world way? Right. Like, why did they phrase it like that? Why? Mm. How is this supposed to be performed? Mm. And, you know, it's funny. Somebody later said, uh, his Beowulf performance was in the voice of Gandalf, you know, like this powerful voice was this was this Tolkien speaking in Old English kind of tone. What what would I not pay to see that <laughs> one of those lectures live, you know, or to, to hear a recording? It's a, it's a shame we don't have that anymore. I know there are some uh, recordings of Tolkien reciting some of the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, which you can uh -huh. find on vinyl on eBay somewhere. Um, mm. And I'm sure that they are online somewhere, too. Right. Um, but also, if you want to read his translation of Beowulf, because he did do a full translation of Beowulf into modern English, uh, you can find that uh, on just on Amazon if you want to buy the book. Very cool. Okay. So what is this um, concept or term conlanging? Yeah, so conlanging is something that you hear a lot today with, you know, if you watch Game of Thrones, the Dothraki language and High Valyrian. Uh, these authors are creating these languages. And there's actually like a full career now where if you want to work on TV shows that are based on fantasy works, there are full careers where you take bits and pieces that authors wrote in their books and you turn them into usable languages for TV and movies. That's wild. Yeah, but this really, Tolkien was the one who, who made this a big thing in fantasy mm. works. Okay. And he was really unique in the field of philology as being a language inventor, because this was not something that you necessarily did as a philologist. Mm -hmm. He just wanted to be, as Humphrey Carpenter puts it, he, he had been inside language. And that gives him such a unique point of view of it. Interesting. And so for the, the Elvish language, Quenya, he, that's actually a language you could go out and learn right now, right? Yeah, yeah. I, there, there's gaps, but, uh, sure. but it's pretty well developed. Cinderin is more developed. Oh, really? Okay. I didn't realize that there were more than one elf, Elvish language oh, yeah. that I could go learn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Sindarin is largely inspired by Welsh, um, you know, again, one of his favorite languages, and Quenya is largely inspired by Finnish. So he's not totally, fully making it up out of nothing. He's mm -hmm. taking inspiration from real languages. And right. it's funny, he, he made up alphabets, too, for this. And he would keep diaries in English, but sometimes he would do these diary entries in his made-up alphabets, 
But then later he would decide that this letter should actually look like this and this letter should look like that. So it was like impossible to decipher his old diary entries because he kept changing his mind about what things meant. Every time we kind of talk about his writings and and his journals and all these kinds of things, I just cannot fathom. It's one thing to have had Tolkien, you know, writing and doing stuff. But it's another thing to have his son, Christopher, who was the one who went through all of that stuff and made sense of a lot of that stuff and rectified a lot of these uh, changes, as you say. Uh, it Really, I'm just I'm, I'm so impressed that uh, his son was able to, you know, um, make light of, of so much of what Tolkien had put down. Oh, yeah, it's no easy task. And if you read the history of Middle Earth, you'll see all of Christopher's notes of Okay, so I have this manuscript here, but he jotted this down at the bottom, and I think this is what it meant. Uh, so it's it's certainly a daunting task that I would not wish on anyone. <laughs> Indeed. So thank you, Christopher Tolkien. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Christopher. And and I think too with this philology, like would would the Lord of the Rings, just the whole legendarium, w- would it have been as captivating if he had not been a philologist? You know, I don't know, because Tolkien was big on a language needs a person to speak it. It needs a people mm-hmm. to speak it. I see. And so I don't think he would have gone so deeply into mythology if he had not been so obsessed with this language creation thing. Yeah, because, you know, the, like like I said, I think I mentioned this in one of our earlier chapters, is like the moment you encounter Lord of the Rings, you instantly feel the depth and the breadth of, well you can't know all the the full boundaries of it but like you really get a sense that this is a well-developed and fully fleshed out world and i don't know that you get that without that linguistic component right like the the names of people have such meaning mm-hmm. of of why they were named that way whether it's a given name or if it's a name that was based on someone else uh, and and I think that the histories tied to names and the histories tied to languages really have a big impact on how he views elves in particular, which makes it a great, you know, primer for our subject today. Right. And and the the names make sense, right? They're not just some weird made up. I mean, like I cringe on some shows, you know, where they make up some swear words or some sort of you know <laughs> other place, and you're just like, oh, it sounds so wrong. It's just like somebody just made it up. Whereas in Tolkien's world. It feels organic and it feels lived in. Yeah, you know, there's this funny detail, and I don't know the source, but but there's this funny detail that Tolkien writes somewhere that oh, I censored the orc speak more than I <laughs> no, more than it needed to be because it was just so horrific. Nobody wants to hear that. He said everybody knows what orc speak sounds like. It exists in the real world too. Wow, amazing, <laughs> very cool. Okay, that's uh, philology. Um, let's talk uh, a couple of literary themes that we're going to see play out. Um, I think the first thing we were going to chat about was about those who do evil. Yeah, so those who do evil have a hard time trusting anyone else because they assume that other people intend to do evil, even if they haven't shown themselves to do that. Mm-hmm. And that cr- that prevents a lot of alliances, and that creates a lot of strife that doesn't need to be there. And and one of the things that Tolkien is always trying to impart in his works, I think, is that if you have this evil, distrusting nature, you will fail because the good people are going to be able to trust each other and they're going to be able to unite and defeat you. And so distrust is a big weakness of evil in Tolkien's universe. I think that's a really... Um... 
I don't want to get too um, uh, real worldy in this, uh, but like that, I think that has a, a that gives me a little hope, a little bit of strength in in what's going on in the world today. Uh, just thinking that, yeah, those of us who are speaking truth uh, can trust each other. Where uh, if you're not, you can't. Right, and you could even apply it in the Lord of the Rings. I mean, that's why can't Saruman and Sauron have an effective alliance? Because each one is looking at the other one, like, what are you going to do next? And we also see that in the uh, between Boromir um, when he gets uh, swayed by the ring, that that's really the breaking of the fellowship. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's a good segue into our other theme, which was mm-hmm. the desire to possess rather than share beauty. Indeed. So one of the big things with elves is... We're going to talk about this guy named Feanor who mm-hmm. uh, created these Silmarils. And Silmarillion. Let's compare <laughs> Feanor and hoarding the Silmarils, which we'll talk about what they are, with Aule, who we talked about in an earlier episode, created the dwarves, but didn't create them with the desire to dominate them but mm. or to possess them, but to share them and to create. And looking at the intent of the creator in the quality of the creation is so important in Tolkien. You don't want to hoard beauty in Tolkien's work. You mm-hmm. need to share that. Otherwise, you're up to no good. Interesting. Interesting. That's very cool. I, that uh, that really um, starts to make me think about a lot of things that we know from um, the Lord of the Ring movies and, and, and books. So it'd be really great to see how they play those things out in uh, Rings of Power. Yeah. Okay, so let's take a little break, and then we're going to come back with some elf lore. All right, and we're back. And we are going to do a little bit of a deep dive here, huh, John? A deep dive it is. Into elves. Uh, All things elf. Elvish, elven. Um, I think it might be helpful for folks to um, take a little disclaimer on this. Uh, We're going to be dumping a lot of lore and information, and I don't know that you will need to try to remember everything that we're going to talk about. Again, just sort of let it wash over you. And then towards the end, we're going to zero in on a few characters and a few locations that are going to be significant and important to remember. Um, But otherwise, just kind of take it all in and and let it sort of inform your your context for the world. Um, I did have a question for you, though. It seems like... Like there's a lot of um, inconsistencies in the history and the writings of uh, El- all things Elvish. Yeah, so he Tolkien was editing these things until he died, and he had a lot of different ideas about how long elves should live and how they should fade and how they should be born and what their origins were, and he was consistently revising them. So. We're pulling mostly from the Silmarillion just because that's the most canon of the posthumous works. Okay. But we'll also pull some details for fun from The Nature of Middle-Earth, which is debatably part of canon, but not totally consistent within itself and with the other works. So there may be multiple answers that we don't give all the answers to this episode, but we'll at least give you a general background 
That'll give you an idea of what Tolkien was going for with this elf lore. There might be an answer you find in one of the History of Middle-Earth books that is contradictory to something I say on this, and that's totally valid. Right. And that's all right, and we can talk about that on the feedback episode. There you go. Or always jump on uh, the Discord and uh, give us a holler as well. Yeah. So uh, I thought we might start our conversation off with a little bit about general characteristics and then maybe jump into some history because there's a lot that goes on with the history. And then um, towards the end, talk a little bit about the factions because there's different elves in different places. And then we can leave everyone with some specific characters to look out for in the show. And then that'll have some uh, location information uh, embedded in that. How's that sound? That sounds great. Okay, so let's start with a little bit about elves themselves, the physicality of elves. Yeah, so elves are this combination body-spirit being. The body is called the Hroa, and the spirit is called the Fea. The Hroa and and the Fea. The Hroa and the Fea. (laughs) I'm just going to call it body and spirit for the rest of this podcast. (laughs) We don't have to go into too many uh, Quenya words. Okay. (laughs) And the idea is that this... Fea, the spirit, is consuming the body, consuming that energy over time, which is how elves age and how elves fade. It's also how elves birth new elves. They put some of their spirit and body into the making of these new elves. And that's why elves have fewer children than men do. Uh, If they have an especially special child and a powerful child, now that they're going to have fewer children, they might only have one child at that point. So there's a big emphasis on this limited capacity of body that elves have. Because when they run out of that body energy, when they run out of that froa, it, they're all spirit and they become invisible to the, me- the human eye. Wild. It makes me think a little bit of like a, a candle, um, you know, the flame burning through the wax. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Hmm. But that's not the end of the story for elves, though. Okay, no, obviously (laughs) obviously not. It's not that simple. Right, so elves are technically immortal. Like, they fade to this spirit, but their lifespan is still the whole span of the life of Arda. That's the world. So they're tied to the fate of the planet. They're tied to the age of the planet. Mm -hmm. So what happens when an elf fades is that you know they're invisible to the human eye but they go to the the halls of mandos in valinor now that's that area where these holy beings live the undying lands and the halls of mandos are sort of this waiting room for the afterlife okay so they go there a lot of people go there before they go off Mm -hmm. to wherever they're going but the elves go there and they await whatever is going to happen now some refuse to go there and they can't be re-embodied but the people who do go there a lot of them are re-embodied, and they get to live in Valinor, and they get to live in peace. Uh, some okay. of them are sent back to Middle-earth every now and then. This is very rare. Like Glorfindel, who's a great elf that defeated a Balrog in the first stage, and he's actually in the Lord of the Rings, but they took him out of the movies. Mm-hmm. And then some are not allowed to come back as a matter of policy, like Feodor, mm-hmm. who we'll get into a little later was a little bit of a mischievous boy. Whoopsie. That's right, yeah. Got got his hand in the cookie jar. Yeah, yeah. 
no re-embodiment for you. Nope. So, <laughs> so elves and they there's a kind of like dog or cat years, right? There's there's li- the lives of elves and the lives of men, um, and there's a kind of a different ratio for for different elves in different places. Yeah, and again, this is one of the ideas that Tolkien had. There are other ones that you can find throughout his writings, but I like this one. It's mm-hmm. that, and so elves are aging obviously a lot slower than men. The rates he had in mind at some point were that in Valinor, in the Undying Lands, they age at a rate of one elf year is 144 man years. Oh. So that's pretty slow. And then mm-hmm. if they go to Middle Earth, because they don't have that protection of the Undying Lands, they have this taint from Morgoth. We've talked about him, big bad dude from the first age. Then they're aging at about a rate of one year to 100 man years. So a little bit faster. Got it. Okay. And also perhaps a little bit faster after the fall of Sauron, which is why you see a little bit more haste to get to the Undying Lands in The Lord of the Rings. Interesting. Okay. So that's sort of maybe at the back of their minds uh, um, when they're uh, talking about leaving um, Rivendell. Yeah. And part of that is because of the rings, because those Mm, rings aren't working anymore at the end of The Lord of the Rings. Got it. So, so now, so what's the math here? Like a a twenty-year-old elf would be what uh, human life? Yeah. So this is going with the hundred forty-four-year math. So that's if Uh they're in Amun, they're they're in the Undying Lands. They'd be about two thousand eight hundred eighty human years. Okay, that's a lot. But they age much like. Men do just at this higher scale. So like at 20 years old in elf years, you're basically a full grown human. And then around 25, you bury your first child and at 60, you're starting to look old. So they're aging at a similar scale. They're just aging a lot slower. Got it. Okay. All right. So that's not too bad. That that makes sense a lot. So how, how did we get... So let's talk a little bit about history. How did we get... Elves. Uh, these are the first children of uh, Ruvala. Uh, <laughs> arugula. Of, uh, Aru- arugula. Uh, <laughs> these are the first children of Arugula. Eru- arugula. Yes. <laughs> Eru- leave it in. <laughs> leave it in. I say we leave it in. All right. So um, they are the first children of the creator god. Yes. They're the first children of Iluvatar. And so Middle Earth at some point in the first age is in twilight because the sun and moon have not been created yet. And those two trees we talked about in Valinor, they're in there, but middle earth is still in this pretty dark spot because Morgoth has been causing a lot of havoc around this, you know, Morgoth again, the Lucifer Satan figure. He's been just running wild in middle earth and the Valar are like, well, nobody's there yet. We can just let him do his thing. We don't have to deal with him just yet. Uh huh. So, they hear from Mandos, who's the the fate, the doom Vala, and they're like, hey, you know, it's coming pretty soon. The elves are coming pretty soon, the first children of Iluvatar. We don't know when or where, but it's going to happen this age. So, so Iluvatar did not tell his own angels that he, it, they, it, the, this creator, that God was going to create some form of life to inhabit the world that, that he had created. So they knew that the two sets of children of Iluvatar, that's elves and men, were going to come at some point. Okay. 
they did not know when. And that's on purpose huh. because they don't want the Valar going and co-opting these people and sort of teaching them their ways. Eru Iluvatar wants them to have this sort of free will. Oh, uh, okay. Got it. So they don't, Eru Iluvatar doesn't want the Valar to like be helicopter parents in a sense. Right, right. Okay. They want them to be Gen Xers. <laughs> Go figure it out on your own. <laughs> there you go. So it's dark out. Yeah. What do we need? We need light, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the Valar, Varda, who's the queen of the Valar, she is in charge of the stars. So she decides to make quite a few more stars and the most beautiful stars to prepare Middle Earth, make it a little brighter and prepare it for the elves. Nice. Just as she finishes doing that, the elves awake from the waters of Kuvianen, which is uh, like an huh? Eden type of area. Okay. And they Sounds look up like at a, the stars. like an expensive drink at, that you get at the club. <laughs> yeah, Kuvianen. Kuvianen. Got it. Okay. And they look up at the stars and they're like, wow, this is awesome. We love this place. Mm-hmm. And thereafter, they revered Varda and they gave her a bunch of honorifics like Ellen Tari and they worshipped her forever more more than any of the other Valar nice so Quivianen is sort of their Eden they awoke mm-hmm. there and that was a good area for their, to, them to live for a while but they don't get to stay there and they don't get to return there because the world changes at a certain point and they can't even find it again mm, very Eden very biblical here Yes. They're turned out of uh, out of paradise. Exactly. And now, this isn't due to any wrongdoing, so to speak, of them. But remember, we have Morgoth mm. sitting in the corner of Middle-earth, just seething and going, hmm, something's new here. And the other Valar haven't really figured it out yet, so I'm going to take advantage of this. Interesting. Okay. The plot thickens. So Morgoth is going around and he's sending some people to the elves and like, hey, why don't you come over here? Uh, He's luring elves out from their camp and they're getting picked off one by one as uh, prisoners. And these prisoners in one version of Tolkien's writings, and this is not universal, the, the prisoners become orcs out of torture and out of torment and out of, you know, the magic of Morgoth. Some real stranger danger going on here. Yeah, and that's a big thing in Tolkien's work, too, is that evil cannot create. It can only mar. Oh, interesting. Okay. So he's he's grabbing them and turning them into orcs. Right. And, you know, that, that makes it so that the orcs hate their master, really, because Morgoth didn't yeah. give them life. They, he just made them orcs. He twisted them. Yeah, he twisted and, broken, and broke them. Yep. Exactly. And then they they hate the elves because that the elves are what they were and they they are no longer. Right. So the elves hate them, they hate the elves and that's the animosity. Wow. Now there's some moral implications with that that Tolkien wasn't totally comfortable with. Okay. So he was moving away from that towards the end of his life, but in the Silmarillion it does state that this is how the first orcs were made. Crazy. Okay. So so Morgoth is is grabbing some you know, turning some of them into orcs. And then at some point, the other Vala finds the elves and start to figure out what's going on. Well, there's one of the Valar, and his name is Orome. Mm-hmm. And Orome 
is the Lord of the Forest. He's this hunter, this this macho man who's going through and on his horse and just being a guy in the forest. (laughs) Right. And he's going on one of his adventures one day, and he says, hey, look at that. That's something new. And he finds them, and he says, wow, these little guys are great. We should totally take them. We We should totally help them. You know, like, this is, they're not in a good spot. We should totally help them. Right. So he figures out that Morgoth is messing with him as well. Yes. And, you know, so at this point, RMA sees what they can do, too. They're the they're the Quendi, which means those who speak with voices, mm. because language was a gift to the elves and not even the Valar spoke until they met the Quendi in one version of Tolkien's writings. So so in, in vocalization, like in, in like as we're talking now. So that didn't exist until the elves showed up. Right. That's an elvish creation. Wow. OK, cool. So RMA sees these guys, he says, wow, you know, they are just talking it up and they're living life and I'm going to teach them how to live better. So he's he's enamored with them and he teaches okay. them how to hunt, he teaches them how to live better, and he's sort of their shepherd for a while. Sounds good. And eventually he goes back to Valinor, he goes back to his boss Manway and he says, hey, you know, I found these guys, uh, we should totally take care of Morgoth now because we've been waiting a long time. It's pretty bad out there. They need our help. We're Valar. They're not. It's up to us to defeat Morgoth. Right. That's their job, in in essence. Right. They've sort of been abdicating it for quite a long time. <laughs> okay. And so finally, they decide, all right, all right, we'll go to Middle-earth. We'll take care of Morgoth. So on behalf of the elves, although the elves didn't, don't like ask for this, but on behalf of the elves, the Valar besieged Morgoth in his fortress, and eventually they take him prisoners. Uh, this, again, is why Morgoth and Sauron, who's his servant at this point and his you know, top lieutenant, uh, why they hate the elves forever, because they understand that without the elves, the Valar might never have come for Morgoth. Interesting. Okay. And this is all like solid um, first age stuff, right? Yeah, we're, we're firmly planted in the early first age. So Morgoth got captured. He's getting taken to Valinor. He's going to sit in judgment for several ages and, uh, and wait for everyone to cool off a little bit. And then he can sue for pardon later. But while this happens, the Valar look around in Middle-earth and they say, wow, he really did a number on this place. We really need to get these elves to Ammon because this is not a good place to live right now. Okay. So they send RMA. They say, RMA, you know these guys pretty well. Go to the elves, see what they say, bring them to us. Right, bring them over to, to Amon, the un, in, to bring them to the Undying Lands. Right, he said, they, he, they say bring them west because they can't live in the east anymore. Got it. So, the elves hear RMA's proposal and they say, well, we've met you, RMA, and you seem pretty cool. But the only other one of the Valar we've ever met is Morgoth, and he's pretty scary. So right now we're on a coin flip. (laughs) Yeah, we don't know if we trust you or not. Right. And, you know, that's pretty reasonable. There are these godlike beings interacting with you, and you're like, well, one of you was good, one of you was bad. We don't know what the next one's going to be like. (laughs) Right. And you want us to leave where we are and go really far away to where there's more of you. Yeah, and Hmm. they're not living a bad life. They're, you know, they're making it work. Right. So some of them just outright refuse, right? Some of them are Mm. called the Avari, the unwilling, and they don't really come further into the story because they just stay in the East. They're just in Middle Earth, and they're not going anywhere. Okay. Some of them say, 
well, we'd like to come, but we're still a little nervous, so we're going to send three representatives. So those representatives are Ingwei, Finway, and Elway. That those all sound <laughs> Ingwe, the same. Ingwei, Finway, and Elway walk into a bar. Yeah. Uh, okay. They all sound the right? same. Those yeah. ones you can let go back out your head. It's okay. Right. Right. We don't need them. Okay. Uh, but they will be the founders of these major houses of elves. Okay. So the important thing to remember here is there's three major factions of elves. Right. Got it. So Ingwei, Finway, and Elway go to Valinor. And they see the two trees, these like beautiful lights with wisdom in them for some reason. And they're blown away. They're like, wow, we got to go back right now and bring everyone here because this is the greatest thing we've ever seen. Nice. Dope. So they go back and their people are like, all right, all right, we'll go. But they, they get led by RMA. They have to take time because there's a lot of, there's a lot of obstacles in the way and what happens now is that some of the Eldar, which are the elves who chose to go west, some of the Eldar right. make it all the way there. Some of them okay. make it all the way there and leave, and some of them make it part of the way there. And that's how we're going to divide elves. So that is the main way we divide the nature of elves, and then they're subdivided by sort of political factions. So um, uh, I'll just make a note for the listeners at this point. Um, John, you put together a really great flowchart to break this down, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. And I really encourage you to either go grab that now or um, you know come back later once you've taken a look at this, because this thing really helped me understand this. And I'm supposedly, you know, like I'm doing a podcast about this stuff. And it was really confusing, but the, the flowchart really helped because uh, it breaks down not only the different uh, factions, but also the factions that made it to the different locations. So that'll be uh, linked in the show notes for the for the episode. Yeah, I put that together because during my research, it was really hard for me to find a second age flowchart because okay. so much of the research is done on the third age and the first age. So I really wanted to put something together that showed where we're at at the time of the show. So yeah, definitely take a look at that and we'll walk you Super through it helpful. now. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right. So we've got three factions. Three factions. So the first one's easy. It's called the Vanyar. They're fair elves. They're led by Ingwei. They make it all the way to Ammon. They see the trees and they stay there. That's, Simple story. That's basically <laughs> that's it, it for them. Okay. They're very, they're very happy there. God Perfect. bless them. Love it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he did. Okay. Uh, um, the next one I'm just going to mention briefly is the Noldor, mm -hmm. and they get to Ammon, and eventually they're going to decide to leave. But we're going to come back because that's the main focus of our story. Got it. Okay. The third one are the Teleri. So the Teleri, some of them make it there, and some of them don't. So we'll go through that now. So the Teleri that make it there are called the Falmari, and they are mm -hmm. sea elves. They settle on the shores of Ammon. Uh, they're great shipwrights. They're going to interact with the Numenorians a lot later. And uh, they don't come too far into our story, except perhaps we'll see some of them going in and out of Numenor, depending on where we're at in the story at the beginning of the series. Okay. The next ones are the Sindar. You, you'll recognize the word Sindarin, which is the language that a lot of people learn when they want to learn a Tolkien language. Okay. Um, 
they are the, the pretty much the dominant group in uh, the area of Middle Earth that we're interested in at the point okay. of the of the Second and Third Ages. Uh, they made it to the western part of Middle Earth uh, in Beleriand, which is this great Elvish area, but they didn't get to cross, so they never saw the trees. Okay, so they didn't make it. Right. And the last one out of the Teleri is the Sylvan Elves, they're wood elves. We know we definitely have a uh, a made-up Sylvan Elf as one of the characters in the series, so okay. this will definitely come into play. They didn't make it all the way into Beleriand. They settled more in the woods. They're in mostly Mirkwood and Lothlorien at the point of the Second and Third Ages. Okay, so we've got the... I'm just going to recap to this point. So we've got the... Vanyar, the fair elves, they made it all the way, saw the trees, and stayed at, with the trees. Mm-hmm. Then we have the Teleri, but the Teleri have three groups within them, subgroups within them. The sea elves, who who got it, but then came back a little ways and settled further away on the coasts and stuff. We have the Sindar, who didn't make it at all, and they remained in the western parts of Middle-earth. That's right. And then we have the Sylvan elves, who didn't even get that far. Yeah, they uh, they settle sort of all over, but mostly in the forest. Okay, got it. All right, so we've got Vanyar, Teleri, and now we've got Noldor. Right, so I briefly mentioned before, they do make it. All of them make it to Ammon, and they see the trees. The, the Noldor do. The, the Noldor, Noldor do. The Noldor. Right. All of them make it to the trees. They say, hey, these are great. Um, it's led by Finway, who has a son named Feanor who is probably the most important character in the first age. Mm. So Feanor sees the trees. And again, we talk about the desire to possess, the desire to dominate, Mm -hmm. uh, being something that's very dangerous in Middle-earth, in Tolkien lore. Okay. And Feanor sees the light of the trees and says, yeah, I'd like some of that. Right. So he is a great forger because Aule, the forging uh, at Valar, who you might know uh, was involved with Sauron too. You know. Right, right. We'll get to that later though. Yep, yep, yep. Um, so Aule had taught these Noldor how to uh, how to forge things and Feanor was the greatest of all of them. Okay. And so he put a lot of his spirit into making these Silmarils, you know, the, a, lot of, a lot of his body energy into making these Silmarils, which is why he can't remake them, by the way. Remember, we talked about how the elves expend energy to do great acts. So he's poured himself into these. What, what are they? Right. So he's poured himself into the Silmarils, and they're these three beautiful gems with the light of the two trees in them, with a portion of it. Interesting. Okay. So he's kind of captured the light of the trees into a gem. Right. And everyone's like, wow, these are awesome. But Feanor kind of locks them away for himself because he's just kind of nervous about people taking them. He's like, you know, I made these. I'm not giving them away. <laughs> My precious. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, echoes of that, right? Okay, got it. Anyway, during his hoarding, he's tricked by Morgoth, who's now been let out on good behavior parole. Mm-hmm. And uh, he loses them because Morgoth goes and steals them. Yikes. Now, here's the big important part. Against the will of the Valar, Feanor says... We were fine in Middle-earth, and we're going to go back there, because we know Morgoth is there with my Silmarils, and we need to take an oath right now 
that we're going to get them back at any cost. And I can read a little portion from that oath now. Interesting. Okay. To pursue with vengeance and hatred to the ends of the world, vala, demon, elf, or man as yet unborn, or any creature, great or small, good or evil, that time should bring forth unto the end of days, whoso should hold or take or keep a Silmaril from their possession. Dang, that gave me some chills. <laughs> that is some powerful stuff that uh, he's laying down there. He says they'll even kill a god if they have to, to get these Silmarils Whoa. back. Oh, okay. Drama. Some serious narrative drama here. No good. No good. So the Valar hear this, and they're just scandalized. Not just because of that, but because at this point, Morgoth had struck down the two trees, right? Oh, right. Okay. Mm, kind of important. Kind of an important fact, because, right, the Silmarils then have some of the light of the tree, right? Right. And, and we know at this point that if they got back a Silmaril soon enough then they could rekindle the trees. Interesting. Okay. But Feanor says, no, no, no. They're mine. Mm-hmm. So Feanor, on this, you know, greed journey and this pride journey, takes the Noldor back to Middle-earth. And he does it with the first act of violence of the first major act of violence of the elves, which is the first kinslaying. Oh, right. Well, yeah, there you go. Right. To pursue with vengeance. Right, right. So in that... He goes up to the Teleri, we talked about them, who, who live on the shores of Falmari. Right. And he says, I need your ships. We got to go back. Uh, and you have the only ships that'll take me to Middle-earth. And they say, well, no, we heard that the Valar don't want you to go. You're not taking our ships. And so he orders his people to kill them. And they slaughter Ooh. them mercilessly. Ooh, not good. Now, something important here is that Galadriel was part of this group. Oh. But she did not take the oath. Uh-huh. And she did not partake in the kinslaying. Okay. So she didn't she didn't speak the words and she didn't shed the blood, but she went along with them. Right. So she did go against the will of the Valar and leave Ammon. Right. And she did so she went against the will of the Valar. But she didn't do the two worst things of the Noldor. And and we'll see how that comes back to play into play as we see the fates of these people. So now we're kind of getting to this thing. So we've we've gotten all this history. We've got multiple elves moving three different sort of factions, the, the Valinyar, the Talari, and the Noldor, all on this thing to go see the trees. Some of them have decided to go back and to pursue the Silmarils. And I think that's where it's going to leave us for a few key players out of this big, uh, deep story of, of elves. Um, so Galadriel is one of the people we need to pay attention to. Yes. And we've got a few more. Yeah, for sure. So Galadriel, like I just said, she's in Middle Earth now. Mm -hmm. Pretty much most of the Noldor have died off. Feanor died pretty early on. Uh, the Silmarils were lost um, to different parts of the world and to the like sort of the sky. And uh, so Galadriel is one of the last remaining Noldor. Okay. And so she decides to found a city in the second age. And that city is called Aregion. Uh-huh. And it's, it's one of the last Noldor cities. Okay. Eventually she's going to cede the leadership of that city to Celebrimbor, who's the grandson of Feanor. So he's another great forger. Okay. And he's involved with the forging of the rings. That's right. Yep. Okay. He's gonna he's gonna forge the three Elvis rings. Spoiler alert for next episode. <laughs> and eventually Galadriel will move to Lothlorien. 
where we encounter her in the Lord of the Rings story. Right. And remember, Lothlorien has a lot of Sylvan elves there. At this point, it has a lot of Sindar elves, too. Okay. All right. So who else do we need to pay attention to? Yeah. We also have Gilgalad, who is okay. the high king of the elves of the West. Big title. Okay. He's, a, he's one of the Noldor, too. Uh, he's mm-hmm. a solid dude, though. And he okay. is sort of the last leader of the Noldor. And he leads a lot of the Sindar in the west of Middle-earth, too. He's based in the Grey Havens, which you see at the end of The Lord of the Rings, where they're sailing off west. But he rules a bigger area than that. So the next one we have is Elrond, who had worked with mm. Gilgalad. You'll remember he's the son of Arendil, that half-elf. Okay. And he's still starting out a lot in this series. He's young, and as you see in the casting, he's going to found Rivendell, or what they refer to in Elvish as Imladris, right. uh, after the destruction of Eregion. Okay. Uh, but for now, he's sort of just serving with Gilgalad. But the last one I wanted to mention is not one of the Noldor. He's one of the Sindar. His name is Círdan the Shipwright. And he is serving with Gilgalad. He's a big leader in the Sindar elves, and he's going to be another big part of this war against Sauron. Okay, so we've got uh, Galadriel, we've got uh, Gilgalad, Elrond, uh, Celebrimbor, and what was the last one you mentioned? Círdan. Círdan. And so these are all key people that we want to track as we go into uh, the Rings of Power. Yeah, absolutely. I I think there's no way they get through this series without at least using those characters, and we know that they've invented a few more. Interesting. Okay, cool. Well, yeah, they probably to flesh out the storyline a little bit, as you have to do uh, translating um, books into television. Yeah, there aren't a lot of major Sylvan Elf characters in the lore, and so they have created a Sylvan Elf. I forgot his name. Uh, He was on Sesame Street, which is how I know him. (laughs) Uh, But (laughs) No, but uh, they have cast one of the Sylvan Elves, and there's going to be, it looks like, some elf-human romance, which is a whole other topic we'll get into at a later time. All right. So uh, up next, we have the creation of the Rings of Power. Yep. We got to get some rings in power. I am excited for that episode. It's always been one of those hanging questions for me um, when I'm, you know, read and uh, watch the movies. Uh, like, yeah, what's up with these other rings? So I'm really looking forward to that next episode. Yep. A lot of questions in the air. Um, I didn't know a lot of it before I dug into it. I don't think that they explain it too thoroughly in The Lord of the Rings. So we're going to have a good discussion. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Thanks, John. This has been great. Thank you, David. The Second Age Podcast is produced by the Lorehounds and published by Bald Move. You can send questions and feedback about this podcast to secondage at baldmove.com. For more Rings of Power content, subscribe to Dug Too Deep on your favorite podcast app. Ad-free versions of this and all other Bald Move podcasts can be yours by going to patreon.com slash baldmove. Check the show notes for reading recommendations and more info. Thanks for listening. A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies, 
Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. <laughs>